Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Precision Insights. I'm Andrea Collins, a clinical pharmacist and product manager here at Genexis, and I'm your host for today. I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Martin Dawes, Genexis's chief scientific officer and co-founder for another exciting episode. Today, we're going to be discussing pharmacogenetics and its implementation in primary care. Martin, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Andrea. It's great to be talking with you about this. Yeah. Well, before we get started, uh, could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and your role at Genexus? Okay. Yep. So I like to catch salmon with a fly on the rivers in British Columbia, which is beautiful, but that's perhaps not the (laughs) topic for today. Um, I came here from McGill University. I was head of family practice there, and I was recruited when I was running the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine in Oxford. So I gradually come further and further west. And I I was a a full-time family physician for about 17 years in Oxford, looking after about 1,800 patients, cradle-to-grave service. And then at McGill, in fact, I got involved with a trial that was looking at using pharmacogenetics um, for warfarin and including it into our electronic medical record. And then when I got to UBC as head of family practice there, we started looking at how could we actually turn this uh, technology into something that could be used in primary care for many more conditions. Very interesting. Yeah, you've had quite the, quite the journey and you bring a lot of uh, depth and breadth of experience uh, to our team, which is really exciting as well. So you're obviously really familiar with pharmacogenetics uh, through both your past work um, with different family practice departments, as well as with Genexis. Um, but what's been your experience with pharmacogenetics in primary care thus far? Putting my hands up and being totally honest, I think it's really novel within primary care. There are a few uh, physicians around the world who are who are pushing this technology forward. But if you're walking into uh, your practice, assuming you've got a family doctor and said, I'd like a pharmacogenetic test, the reaction is likely to be surprise, probably interest, because there's enough awareness about pharmacogenetics, but not necessarily the ability to say, oh yeah, here's a form, off you go. Uh, I don't think we're quite at that stage, but where we are at is the awareness of of primary care, and I'm going to extend that to pharmacists and nurse practitioners as well, of the role of pharmacogenetics. And so I think that has changed. That If you went 10 years ago, and that's what happened to me, a researcher coming in and saying, we'd like to do some work on pharmacogenetics, I'm going, are we ready for that? I think now when you go into your your family doctor, you're likely to get a, yep, uh, I think that's interesting for you, but I'm not sure how to do it. Yeah, yeah, I've had a similar experience. I mean, as you know, I've worked as a pharmacist in primary care and so have seen some of that evolution of the recognition of pharmacogenetics uh, and also just moving kind of from a a novel service that uh, people might get done to do with, you know, your ancestry, et cetera. And the pharmacogenetics is something just, thrown on top um, to now where people are really recognizing the value of that and, and healthcare providers, I think, are, are more and more seeing what benefits can be provided to their patients uh, and how pharmacogenetic implementation can really improve the patient outcomes. So what, what do you think has been that biggest game changer that's been pushing pharmacogenetics more into the forefront and, and getting healthcare providers to really recognize what the benefit is of pharmacogenetics? Well, there are several factors. I think actually it's the volume of evidence. 
um, that we have moved from one or two association studies between a, a gene and a, a, a serum level of a drug to multiple uh, studies looking at clinical outcomes in the association between drugs and genes, and now randomized controlled trials of pharmacogenetics being implemented within primary care. The other part is the volume of guidelines that are now available through organizations like CPIC, sort of an international clearinghouse, where you know you, they've gone from having one or two studies to guidelines on uh, individual drugs and drug gene associations so that clinicians have some sort of evidence base to actually put this stuff into practice. So that, that's the one part. And then the other part is the cost. The cost has come down mm -hmm. dramatically, which enabled those studies. It was connected so that, you know, the cost coming down from two or three thousand dollars to uh, a couple of hundred dollars enables those studies to be done. Yeah, 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 we've definitely seen the cost drop. And I think you're right that that clinical utility and knowing uh, that it does have uh, real world benefits for the patient beyond just in the laboratory is, is really important. And I think people are, are starting to see that, that value, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a great study by uh, Papastergio and from Toronto, which actually mm -hmm. used pharmacists uh, and closely related to the physicians where they recruited patients with uh, a depression that had really not done well on the first drug um, mm -hmm. and then used pharmacogenetic evidence to inform the future prescribing of those patients and showed it was it was good because it was done in primary care it was using pharmacists it was real patients uh, and it was done over six months so they showed significant differences um, improved remission in patients who had the pharmacogenetic evidence provided to them so trials like that are, are really important for helping move the needle in in people's reaction to the request for a pharmacogenetic test yeah, that was quite an exciting study to read and to see the impact that um, pharmacists could have on implementing those pharmacogenetic both tests for patients and then the implementations as well and, and having the healthcare providers and physicians on board with the changes, which is, yeah. which is great. And so, I mean, that brings us to that education piece. So for these healthcare yeah. providers who aren't really familiar with pharmacogenetics, how much information do they really need to get started in terms of education? So you've talked about these guidelines that are available, but of course, if, if you don't know how to access them or how to apply them to your practice, that can be really challenging to get going. So in your experience, how much education do these clinicians need to start using pharmacogenetics in their practice? So there's an hour's answer there, but I'm not gonna take an hour. Um, June Carroll, an, another Canadian researcher, did some fantastic uh, work looking at, at, at barriers to implementation of pharmacogenetics and found education in the theoretical discussions with physicians was a major barrier for them. And, and so there was a thought that you needed to have uh, education to a level of you know, maybe a certificate or diploma to be able to use this information. And then you have a UK report that's just come out looking at implementation of pharmacogenetics for the whole of the United Kingdom. And they're talking about just-in-time education, which leads to a question, well, what was the education in all those randomized controlled trials that were done? And actually, it was not a certificate or a diploma or a you know, five-hour course. It was a just-in-time education of between an hour and two hours 
um, but a lot of people didn't actually even do the hour. And they were given you know, very clear advice in, in this is how you use the software or the report. Uh, and then gradually, the other key part was to use it for one or two patients uh, and get familiar with the process rather than suddenly using it on all your patients on day one. So I think what the trials show us is that you can have uh, an education process which fits within um, the primary care you know, time constraints. Uh, and the delivery is going to be really important. You can't suddenly do all your patients in one go. Yeah, biting off those little bite-sized pieces, right? And not trying to force uh, a complete practice change overnight. And Yeah, and yeah. Who am I going to test first is, is mm -hmm. a really good question. And, and you can really say, well, actually, you know, if I was doing one patient a week, that would help me get started. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I think we, we've worked on ways that can help people and mental health is a clear area where there's significant benefit, cardiovascular disease and pain is a third. And, and you can say, well, you know, people who are taking multiple drugs who may have had adverse drug reactions would be a place to start. Mm -hmm. Yes, and those people I'm sure would be very interested in, in finding out more about why they might've experienced some of those severe side effects. Yeah. And they're, they're our bread and butter in primary care. Mm -hmm. Whether you're in the pharmacy or you're in the family practice, those patients we see every day. And these are our patients. So when people say, well, why primary care? It's because that's where the prescribing happens. You know, that's where 50% of, of, of encounters in primary care end up with a prescription. And so yeah, this is a natural place for pharmacogenetics. Yeah, I was actually just going to ask you about that. Uh, you know, why primary care? I mean, we've seen in secondary care, right? We've had uh, a few niche areas, especially oncology, HIV care, um, where we've seen pharmacogenetics play a big role in some of the prescribing. And, you know, specialists are often people who deal um, with, you know, a small amount of medications, but they, they know a lot about each of them. And so pharmacogenetics might be an easier fit there versus primary care where, you know, physicians need to know a little bit about uh, many uh, drugs in their prescribing. But yeah, what you said there about um, the majority of prescribing happening there, I think that's where we need to focus for the biggest impact. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely is. I mean, if we're talking about trying to reduce harm, trying to reduce the large number of adverse events um, that result in, you know, either patients coming back to see the primary care provider or unfortunately getting admitted to hospital or going to an ED. Uh, if we're going to try and reduce that using pharmacogenetics, then it makes sense to focus on the primary care because that's how you prevent um, hospitalizations, ED use, things like that. If you said, well, we're going to restrict it to secondary care, you'd never have that impact or you would have it in a, a much less uh, prevalent manner than if you say, well, we're going to try and roll this out for the whole of primary care. Then again, going back to the UK, when they, they talk about doing 60 million patients having a pharmacogenetic test, which is their aspiration, they're focusing on primary care as one of the major areas where they, they've recognized exactly this, that if you're going to reduce the harm through medications, you're going to increase the effectiveness Primary care is a place to, to do that. Now, not alone, because you mentioned HIV, cancer, other specialist areas. Absolutely, they will be part of it. And that brings 
up the question of, well, how do you share the information about the mm. genetic result across all those spaces? Not easy. No, and that's that's one issue that I know we face here uh, in BC and Canada, that disconnect between you know care that's offered in hospitals versus primary care um, and lab values as well. And I know, you know, in the US, I'm sure they have similar with different health systems and transfer of data. So that will definitely be one of the big struggles to overcome in terms of information sharing and making sure everyone has access to to these important results. Although, I mean, I agree, but, uh, you know, I wonder whether this is like the education barrier that when you actually start implementing it, and you know, we have Care Connect in, in British Columbia, which is sort of like a, a system where you can go on and see what's happened to your patient wherever they are. We have a PharmaNet, which actually allows you to see whatever has been prescribed for your patients wherever they are. Various provinces have even more sophisticated data sharing systems. Quebec, I can see a, an X-ray if it's done in the rural areas You know that, that day, um, even though I'm in Montreal. And, so the, the systems actually for sharing data do exist. And it could be that we find that we can actually include the pharmacogenetics, which is, you know, when you compare it to an X-ray, it's, it's a tiny amount of data um, across these systems. I'm not saying it's necessarily gonna be easy. There's confidentiality, there's privacy, but we've already got systems that do this within health. And, mm -hmm. and so maybe the barriers are not gonna be as insurmountable as we think. I think going from province to province will always be challenging because we don't quite have that process yet. But again, the amount of data is small. So maybe there are ways of patients taking that data on credit cards or similar uh, and using that to share it. So we'll overcome that, I have no doubt. When, when there's a problem that needs fixing, then actually Canada is pretty good at doing that. And you can see it from COVID rollout of vaccinations that, yeah, it, it, problems can be overcome. For sure, and actually to do with COVID as well as the, the uptake of e-health, right? And, and uh, e-prescribing and all of that, that seemed like it was so slow in terms of uptake. And then you just need a catalyst like COVID to uh, bring yep. all of that to fruition. So maybe it will be similar in terms of storing that pharmacogenetic data in a place that's yeah. centrally accessible to yeah. uh, patients. Uh, healthcare I, providers. I think that's that's a great example where you know if you'd said uh, in January of 2020 that we need all 90% uh, of our consultations to be virtual within six months, everyone would have gone. That is never going to happen in primary <laughs> care. You you're you're on a different planet. And then yeah. suddenly, actually, that is happening. 90% of them are virtual. Yeah. Now, yeah. now having that data and using it is is <laughs> a totally different thing. Um, so you recently wrote an op-ed in the American Journal of Managed Care that argued the need um, for education, which we've talked about, but also for clinical decision support with pharmacogenetics. Um, so why why is clinical decision support so important when we're trying to implement pharmacogenetics into primary care? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that has happened with pharmacogenetics is it's shone a spotlight on prescribing process. And the, the process is not just pick a drug, give it. It's about understanding all the problems that might be with that drug in that individual patient. And for that, you need lots of data. You need their renal function. You need their liver function. You need to know which drugs they're already taking 
um, to prevent a drug-drug interaction, and there are some conditions that stop you using a drug. So we actually looked at that, and we were going down the conventional idea of a pharmacogenetic report, and the, the focus group of family doctors said, you know, we don't want to be told what not to prescribe. We want to be given the options of the treatments that we could select, that we can prescribe. And that was just a major turning moment. In, in that, at that time, we hadn't even formed a company, but in our research to mm. actually say, is it possible, first of all, to identify all the drug options for an individual for a disease like gout, where there aren't that many treatments, and then say, for this individual in front of me, can I give all those drugs or are there some that wouldn't be uh, appropriate? And what we found during that exercise is the amount of data that you need to look at um, to identify a safe, effective uh, option for a patient is huge. And so that's where the clinical decision support really was developed from. The fact that it's just too much. You can go and look up the renal textbook. You can go and look up the liver functions. You can look up the uh, monograph for the drug to, to see which dose you need to use with those with that renal function. You can look up the drug-drug interaction database, but once you've done that, an hour and a half later, perhaps, <laughs> you know, it, it's just not feasible. And then throw in pharmacogenetics, not possible. So that's why we've come down with this approach of, you know, there are cases, obviously, with a cancer drug, you've only got one option, you use the pharmacogenetic test to inform your dose, absolutely. But in primary care, where you've got much more complexity in, in your drug options, a clinical decision support system is, is absolutely necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, I mean, clinical decision support systems, even without the pharmacogenetics, you know, you mentioned all of that information that we, we have to take into account when thinking about safety and efficacy for a patient and really trying to push beyond that trial and error prescribing. Um, you know, my experience in, in working with patients who had uh, chronic kidney disease alone, right? If you have those patients, they're often on, you know, 15, 20 different medications and trying to sort out all the different drug interactions, the dose adjustments, all of that um, just becomes yeah. so complex. So it's, it's nice to have a support system that you can trust that will offer you, you know, that information at your fingertips without taking the decision out of your hands. Yeah, I mean, and, and if the system can mimic that sort of close relationship between the pharmacist and, and the physician, I think that's a tool that people will use. If it's too black boxish and doesn't actually reveal why drugs are on the list or why drugs are not on the list uh, mm -hmm. of, of options for that individual, I think that's more challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, agreed. People like that um, transparency to know where yeah. the recommendations are yeah. coming from and why yeah. it applies to that patient. Exactly. I mean, I think the why is so important and, you know, seeing... You know, this drug is is not on the list of options. I mean, it's still appearing, but it's it's sort of a little bit further off because of the patient's renal function and a and a genetic variant or something. You go, all right, yep, got it, fine, move on. And and as you say, yes, you want to know that the people who develop that use good evidence resources to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think um, you know from the from the primary care implementation perspective, you know. It, it's great to talk about all of these different goals uh, and strategies for implementing the pharmacogenetic results if we have them. Um, but one thing we also see from patients is this hesitancy to get pharmacogenetic testing done. They don't really understand what it's about. 
Um, they picture, you know, um, sequencing their genome and what that could be used for. Um, so we know there are some, you know, legal protections in place in terms of discrimination based on genetics. Um, but what else are patients worried about and how can we help them overcome those, those worries? I mean, I think one of the major anxieties we found in our research is, is patients worrying that there might be a disease risk associated with a pharmacogenetic test. Uh, so if I get this information, it might tell me my risk of Alzheimer's is, is much, much higher. Uh, or my risk of you know, this muscle problem is, is much higher. And there's nothing I can do about it, uh, one. Secondly, then there's, you know, I, my insurance might be canceled. And I think while there are pharmacogenetic tests that may have some um, association with disease, they're really focusing on drugs. They're focusing on drug metabolism. And most panels have nothing to do with risk of disease. So, you know, reassure patients that this is a specific test, not looking at all those inherited disorders. Um, mm -hmm. The second thing is that in Canada, we have rules and regulations laws about um, insurance companies not using uh, genetic information to alter the level of payment for a, an insurance policy. So, you know, we can re reassure patients about that. But the third thing is that we are bound by HIPAA and, and PIPA and PIPIDA, um, privacy and confidentiality rules as well. So, you know, whatever information is identified is protected within the health system, just as any other uh, test is done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you're right, that clinical actionability is key. I think there's several different um, genetic risk tests that um, people might not want to get because, as you said, there's nothing really that you can do about it at that point. Um, but the key for pharmacogenetics is that it can be used anytime a relevant medication is used and, and not, um, not necessarily used to predict, you know, if the drug will work for you or not. But it's just one more piece of the puzzle, as we say, to yeah. look at which drugs are the highest risk of side effects um, yeah. or potential non-response and, and try and get away from that one size fits all prescribing. Totally. Totally. And I, I think it's interesting when when we we started doing the work as well, that we were looking at patients and we found um, some patients had enormous numbers of variants uh, and the variants that are associated with drug gene interactions are pretty common. I mean, all of us have at least one. Um, but when you individual patients, you, you know, come to me and say, I'd like this drug um, and I don't want that drug because my sister took this drug and and had a good reaction, but when she took the other drug, she had a bad reaction. And you know, people are already saying, you know, parents have reactions to drugs. I don't want to take that drug. They've got, mm -hmm. people understand there is a, an inheritance of reaction to drug, which is exactly what pharmacogenetics is picking up. It's, it's not something that is completely, wow, I didn't realize that people could inherit um, allergies or not allergies, but reactions to drugs. Uh, people do understand that, that these things are inherited. And what we're doing with the science is just making that knowledge more explicit and specific about individual drugs and individual risk. Yeah, and I think that evidence base, as you say, is only growing. And it, it is exciting to see you know, the reason behind some of these reactions that people experience, or as you say, you know, those patients that you see um, who just seem to react to every medication and, and you're, you're just saying, yeah. really, is this, is this, yeah. is this really true? Is it just in their imagination? Yeah. But, you know, yeah. it, it seems to be borne out anecdotally in, in some of these patients' yeah. results. 
Yeah, and their parents, one mm -hmm. of their parents reacted to drugs and children react to drugs. And you think, is there something wrong with this family? Yeah, well, actually, you know, it's inherited. So yeah, it, it, it has been a sort of slow reaction of, of realizing that these families with problems with drugs um, reacting in, a, in peculiar ways, it, it's a reflection of what the genetics is also telling us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as uh, useful as pharmacogenetics can be, I think it's also important to set expectations for patients, right? Um, that, yeah. you know, just like any other lab value, you know, uh, genetics offer one piece of the puzzle, but um, definitely is not going to point you directly to a medication that is 100% going to be effective uh, and yeah. safe for that patient. Yeah. And if you've tried every drug there is for gout, um, doing a pharmacogen, and maybe you've reacted to all of them or haven't got the desired response, by doing a pharmacogenetic test, we don't actually then identify a new drug for you. Uh, mm. that, 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 that's not the expectation. So it isn't a magic bullet. If one uh, has the test, you don't expect to every time to get uh, information that will specifically help you with that particular problem. Um, and you know, there is still the uncertainty of giving a drug. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Now we've talked a little bit about the um, UK report uh, on personalized prescribing and using pharmacogenetics to improve patient outcomes. Um, so they they have several key requirements that they think are successful for, or, or required for um, successfully implementing pharmacogenetics into primary care. Uh, is there anything in that report that we haven't touched on yet that you wanted to talk about a little bit? Um, well, that's a quiz question, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I'm just making you making you think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, making me think on my feet. There is there is the panel. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things that they haven't worked out in the UK yet is what's going to be on the test. Mm -hmm. um, it's an interesting question about what test you actually do. Um, it doesn't cost that much more to put more factors on the panel and more tests on the panel. The problem is that clinicians don't know what to do with it. Uh, so if you have tests where there is very weak evidence, uh, there isn't much clinical outcome, uh, there's no recommendation associated with that variant, well, what are you expected to do with that as a clinician? Um, do you still carry on prescribing the drug? It's unclear. So there is this gray zone um, of we're not sure whether we should include these tests. There, then there is the very clear zone where there's good evidence. We know that if you have this information, care is improved. Um, and you know, when you talk to the people in the UK, they have those variants already probably programmed for the, the panel. What we are waiting for is how many of the gray zone uh, things, items, um, genetic tests are they going to put onto the panel? Uh, and, and that's quite a difficult problem to solve. And it does slow down the implementation of the test. They're going to have seven labs in the UK that will do this. So they are making sure that everyone gets the same test. That is very different from here where, mm -hmm. you know, there are lots of laboratories, uh, you get your test done in one state in the United States, you might get a very different set of tests from having it done by another group. So that's an emerging piece that will be standardized, but probably not for another 20, 25 years, will we get to a steady state where we say, this is the panel. And actually at that time, it might be whole genome sequencing. Mm -hmm. 
well, there's definitely benefits to that, right? Being able to sequence once and then query multiple yep. times uh, as new evidence comes out. And, and I think, as you mentioned, you know, the evidence level uh, for these different drug gene interactions uh, is changing as, as we get more evidence. Uh, and sometimes the drug gene interaction, you know, the one way that we thought it worked uh, with more yep. evidence, we see that it actually works in a different way. Um, or it's not quite as impactful as we first uh, believed. So it is really important to make sure that these these studies continue so that we we yeah. can make sure that we're um, taking the correct action based on these these variants. Yeah. One of the approaches being discussed is the whole genome sequence, but then laying on top of that a filter that mm -hmm. just pulls out the very high evidence um, drug gene associations. And so that the clinicians would just see that, but obviously it means then the data can be used for research to identify other drug gene associations. Yeah, which might be a really good uh, middle ground because yeah. as we know, the, the amount of data you need to, uh, to discover these drug gene interactions is, is massive. Yeah, I mean, we're discovering new variants. And one of the um, issues is that we've focused a lot on, on North America and Europe and, and mostly white populations. And as the testing is expanded to other populations, you're seeing other variants, um, which, which is important to know about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, lots of exciting uh, things on the horizon, for sure, when talking about <laughs> pharmacogenetics and, and its implementation. Well, Thank you so much, Martin, for all your insights and, and kind of experience in implementing pharmacogenetics into a number of different settings, including primary care. Uh, and I uh, look forward to more uh, exciting discussions in the future. Thanks very much, Andrew.